1: It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
0: Monster House presents.
1: You can enjoy extended commercial-free versions of this show by joining us at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. All one word, M-O-N-S-T-E-R-T-A-L-K. For as little as $2 a month, you can enjoy longer interviews, unbleeped language, and bonus episodes exclusive for patrons. And if $2 a month is not workable for you, but you still want to help out, be sure and leave us a positive review on your podcasting platform of choice. iTunes reviews in particular can help bring in new listeners, and your positive reviews really make a difference. If you want to learn other ways to help out, Visit monstertalk.org forward slash support, where you can find even more ways to help keep this show going. Thank you to all of you who are supporting us with your hard-earned money and valuable time. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or even exceed your expectations. It was October, 1943. The United States government authorized an experiment that would render its ships undetectable by radar. The experiment took place on a ship in Philadelphia Harbor. Generators activated, sir. For 41 years, the government denied it ever happened. I don't believe this.
2: The Eldridge has vanished. Of course she has. She's radar invisible.
1: No, sir. She's really vanished. But one ship did disappear, and two of the crew suddenly find themselves in the present. Of Philadelphia Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. I still remember when the Philadelphia Experiment movie first came out. It didn't look like what I had read about the case, so I wasn't particularly interested in going to see it. In fact, given some of the other genre movies that came out in that same year of 1984, it's hardly any wonder. Terminator, Temple of Doom, Ghostbusters, Dune... The NeverEnding Story, Gremlins, Splash, Star Trek 3, Starman, The Last Starfighter, Night of the Comet. It was, it was just going to be a tough year for a little film like this one to stand out. But I finally got around to watching it recently, and it wasn't as bad as I expected. We'll be getting into the movie more in our upcoming coverage on our YouTube series, The Based on a True Story. But it's not the movie we're here to talk about today, and it's not the story behind the movie, although we'll cover that. No, it's actually the real-life story of the three men whose fanatical involvement with UFOs, conspiracies, Fortiana, and confabulation all emerged together around a nucleation point for a modern American myth. And that nucleation point was not a ship in the Navy. No, it was a peculiar little man from Pennsylvania named Carla Allen. And like a molecule that has far more interesting properties than any of the single atoms that form it, So, too, does the story of the Philadelphia Experiment turn out to be a weave, a tapestry of fabric with threads brought by each of the three fathers of the tale. The normal format for any paranormal show would be to tease that there might be something to the legend after all, but I'm not going to do that. The hard work of debunking this story has already been done long ago, more than once, and definitively. Yet, the underlying story of these three fathers... Well, that's a far lesser-known tale, and one that I think is quite worth telling. So I don't think you need to stay up at night worrying about the government trying to turn a ship invisible, only to have it teleport and drive the crew mad, because that never happened. But the things that did happen are strange, they're sad, they're poetic, and perhaps form a better and truer story of fringe America than any of the big myths that we usually focus on. We're delighted to have David Halperin back to cover this with us for two episodes, so please, please, please check the show notes for links to his fantastic research on this topic and to his books and blog.
0: Monster
1: dog. We're excited to welcome back uh, David Halperin again. Uh, as a reminder, David is an emeritus professor of the Department of Religious Studies at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And a, a listener recently told me I talk too fast sometimes. So I'm going to slow down just a little bit. Uh, you last really? heard. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't think I talk fast, but uh, I can't, you know, quality assurance suggests that if people are complaining, maybe I should listen. Um I mean, I don't do that in my marriage, but sure, whatever. <laughs> but uh, David last joined us in give it a go. in May of 2022. My goodness, time flies. Uh, to discuss his book, Intimate Alien, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, I highly recommend both that previous interview and the book. So check that out. A link is in the show yes. notes. Uh, t- we're welcoming David back today to talk about a topic that on the surface might seem like a simple story that's unlikely, But actually, I think is just the icing on top of a giant cake of uh, mystery, uh, (laughs) mental illness, uh, uh, chicanery, all sorts of things. It's really quite a story. So we're going to be talking about Mm -hmm. the Philadelphia experiment. So I thought it might be useful if we... Kind of just began with a, an overview of the narrative of the Philadelphia Experiment, but then I want to look at the people behind it first before we sort of dig in on this on the, that that story.
2: Well, let's do the yeah. fifty thousand foot overview. It is the legend that during World War II, a destroyer ship was turned invisible as part of an experiment with the most terrible effects on those human beings who happened to be on the ship, and that it was teleported in a matter of minutes from a dock in the Philadelphia Navy Yard to Norfolk, Virginia, and then back again. That is the legend. Now what, so be- I would, what we can do... Is explore the drama behind the legend.
0: Not sure where to begin with this, but uh, it just seems strange to me that the story wasn't reported or first reported until about ten years after it supposedly happened.
2: Well, that's part of the that's part of the drama. That's part of the <laughs> drama, and I'm going to I'm going to say I, I don't have the sl- I don't think there's the slightest chance that the legend is true.
1: No, no, so no, we, sadly, no. I, You know, there's skepticism. Right front, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is that, like, yeah. is it true, is it not? Skeptical, deconstruction, debunking. But I think if you just go down to is it true or not, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a lot, because there is so much more going on here. Um, you're going to miss about 95% yeah, yeah. of <laughs> what's
2: important about the
1: Philadelphia it, experiment. It, let's, let's begin by, I, I think it's not a ufo story yet it would not exist outside of ufo culture like or without ufo culture
2: that that is a very deep question because on the surface it's not of it's not at all obvious what it has to do with ufos i mean we associate ufos with life on other planets other galaxies space visitors and the philadelphia experiment doesn't Uh, has nothing to do with any of them, and yet the fact is that it grew up in the UFO context, and it's hard to contemplate the story without having the sense there is something profoundly UFO about it. And I'd like, as we go on, to try to tease out what is that connection? Why it is a branch of the ufo mythology and not something completely independent
1: I, th- I think that's a good place yeah i was thinking that since we we have to kind of divide this up into into two parts that we could begin by talking about the characters who i I've heard of dyads. I guess they're sort of... Is, is triad the right word for the three of them? Are, are, they're, are they a trinity? Are they the three wise men? In some way, they seem to have this <laughs> outsized place in my head because they bring us this story. That, that's their gift. It's not Frankincense, Gold, and Myrrh. It's, it's this convoluted tale that is the treasure, I guess, at the bottom of all this. But uh, I thought we could begin by talking about the people, uh at the, the heart of it.
0: Perhaps we can begin talking, uh, David, about uh, Gray Barker.
1: Okay, Gray Barker.
2: Born in 1925 in a, a place called Riffle, West Virginia, so tiny that it didn't appear on most maps. Grew up in hard Scrabble poverty became a businessman. He called himself a booker and had to explain to people that that wasn't the same as bookie. He ran a business booking films for local movie theaters, but he wanted to be a writer. And in late 1952, he got his chance. In in a location not very far from him, in Flatwoods, in Braxton County, West Virginia, on the evening of September 12, 1952, a woman and seven boys saw a luminous object land on a hilltop, and when they went up to find out what it was, They saw a monstrous creature, a giant about seven feet tall, drifting toward them and fled in terror. Barker did an investigation of the incident, wrote it up for a magazine called Fate. uh, and It was published under the title The Monster and the Saucer. And this started Barker in his career of publishing about flying saucers, as they were then called. Uh, I will say parenthetically that the Flatwoods Monster has since been explained fairly plausibly as the combination of an unusually bright meteor jittery witnesses and a barn owl flying suddenly at them out of the darkness, which I think would have sent me fleeing in terror and their imaginations filled in the seven-foot space between the glowing eyes and the ground. Uh, Barker did an investigation which even by his critics has been called the best investigation of the incident. Uh he was he he was an extremely intelligent man. All the people we're talking about were people of extraordinary intelligence and capability. Uh, and over the course of nineteen fifty three he began to publish a mimeographed little magazine called the Saucerian, uh, reporting news of flying saucer sightings. He also joined a group called the International Flying Saucer Bureau, uh, which was run out of uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and was shut down abruptly when the director received a visit from three men in black who terrorized him into silence. In 1956, Parker published a book uh, on this and similar incidents of silencing. It was called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. I have heard it called a bestseller, but I am not sure how true that is. It is certainly does not appear on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. And I have never Good. once encountered anybody who outside the UFO sphere, who had even heard of the book.
1: But it is a good read. I
2: really enjoyed that book. I mean, (laughs) it it is a fantastically good read and a fantastically good book. Uh, There is a I I, I should mention a parenthesis to the parenthesis that there that in Clarksburg, West Virginia, there is now a Gray Barker collection in the Clarksburg Harrison Public Library. Curated by David Hao Chen, who had a really quite profound understanding of Barker, said that this book, he's that Barker has created a gospel. And that this book is like the gospels in that it brings together law, scraps of lore, facts, most of them true, from different p- parts of the UFO legendary, and puts them together in an extraordinary creation, which made its way to the silver screen in 1997 with the first of the Men in Black movies, long after Barker died. He died in 1984. So Barker is one of what I call the Philadelphia Triangle imitating the bermuda triangle but not geographical um, but of yeah. but of human beings the triangle out of which the legend of the ship emerged
1: well, it's appropriate, too, because you've got just a little bit of Berlitz glue kind of holding it all together. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. Berlitz yeah. glue, <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, do, you, do you want to explain to the listening Oh, audience? well, yeah, yeah. I, we
1: will definitely get to that. But, yeah, Charles Berlitz, uh, if, if there's something weird that was popularized in the 1970s, chances are Berlitz wrote a book about it. Uh, so yeah. uh, I was thinking yeah. in terms of he wrote a popular book about the Bermuda Triangle, Uh, And then he wrote another one about um, what the dragon's triangle. He he he's written a lot of things, um, you know. And so, uh, and I think his he, if I remember correctly, his father was in the language business, maybe. Um, And I think uh, so. He was uh, yes, that's sort of aired a publishing empire there. So yeah, yeah. So yes, that Berlitz. and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast.
0: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents
1: climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
1: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And he, his name appears on the cover of a book, a a 1979 book called The Philadelphia Experiment. I don't think he actually did much writing on it, but by lending his name to the book, he made it a, uh, well, let's say that, that the person who really wrote it, William Moore, was able to quit his job teaching English in high school Nice, as a result (laughs) of that
1: book. (laughs) Well, we've got, I I know, we're going to come back. What I want to do is talk a little bit about these people, and then we'll do, in part two of this, we'll talk about what happened to them. Uh, So the next character I'd like to talk about is Morris K. Jessup. Well,
2: let's talk a bit about Jessup. (laughs) He was uh, was born in 1900 in a... uh, on a farm in Indiana, uh, his neighbors remember the family as having been shabby genteel, quite quite a contrast with Brave Gray Barker's upbringing. Uh, in high school, he was known as a brain, who was quite insufferable toward those who didn't share his intellectual capacities. Uh, he was the teacher's pet, for whom great things were predicted in the future. Uh, he went to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he went first for a BA and then an M. and went, went toward a PhD in astronomy. And there something happened. The teacher's pet turned snarly and rambunctious. Uh, one professor remembered his fits of outbursts of temper bordering on the insane and in 1931 he he left the department of astronomy have got he got his ma but he would never get his doctorate and he spent the next uh, couple of decades wandering if you ask me how he supported himself at the time i i really can't answer that question and i think it's an excellent one uh he visited
1: archaeological sites in uh, Latin America. Can I, was... I quickly say that that's interesting because I was looking at the documentation of that. And for some reason, the Wikipedia article about Jessup acts like that's made up. But he absolutely did. He absolutely really went to these archaeological sites and, 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 and participated in some ways.
2: As far as I know, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: yes. Uh, and I wouldn't
2: find anything... So- surprising about it i mean the man was was tremendously talented uh and he he was struck that the the craters in the highlands in mexico reminded him of craters on the moon and he had the fatal habit of some ex- unusually brilliant and creative people of trying to find the gigantic key to, 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 to unifying all sorts of diverse phenomena. And when the flying saucers put in their appearance in 1947, somehow, and we don't know just how, he became convinced that the flying saucers were the unifying matrix of it all now his views on saucers well you've seen that they were they're really quite unconventional i mean he wasn't you know back in the 1950s the early 1950s it was still quite possible to believe there might be life intelligent life on venus or or mars but he didn't go that route he saw the the flying saucers as coming from a point of gravitation neutral between Earth and Moon. And they were somehow connected with what he regarded as the first wave of human civilization that had been destroyed in some cataclysm. We are the second wave. And the first wave left its relics in these... Tremendously impressive uh, archaeological sites the, 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 that we, st- pe- the people still marvel. I mean, I don't think we need to invoke ancient astronauts, but we can still marvel at the technical virtuosity with which these enormous structures were put together that for Jessup, these were relics of that first wave. And perhaps he thought they were human relics of the first wave in the Digmy peoples of the world, which are sort of a liminal group, he thought, between our present-day humans and the advanced beings who flew the flying saucers. So the flying saucers really are not from other planets or not from outer space, that they are part of the story of humankind. Or indeed, perhaps he said, the UFO is the story of humankind. And I've just shifted from talking about flying saucers to UFOs. UFOs until the mid-50s were a fairly unfamiliar uh, abbreviation used by the military on identified flying objects. And it was Jessup was perhaps the first writer to use them in to use the term in a popular book. And on on uh, the covers of both of his uh, 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 of two of his books, the the case for the UFO and the expanding case for the UFO, there's an asterisk next to UFO. And then at the bottom, unidentified flying object, as if the average reader is not going to know right away what UFO means. So this was where Jessup's first book, The Case for the UFO, came out in paperback in September of 1955. And this is where the drama begins.
0: This seems like it's a good time to start talking about the the third person involved in this story, Carl Allen. David, can you tell us about yes. him?
2: Well, I can tell you a lot about him, but when I first became aware of the story, and, my my friend Jerry Clark, who is one of the master ufologists of our age, uh, sent me uh, sent me the a letter about him in 1963, and told the. Thi- revealed to me what I'm about to reveal to you, he was still a mystery man. So let so I'm going to leave him as a mystery man until a later stage. Uh, I said okay. Jessup's, Jessup's book, The Case for the UFO, came out in 1955, and Jessup also gave a number of lectures in which he, imag- he took Einstein's more or less legendary unified field theory, and said that that may be the key to how the UFOs fly. And at the beginning of 1956, he got a letter. And the letter was postmarked Gainesville, Texas, but had a return address of, from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And the, signer, the, the author of the letter signed himself Carl M. Allen, but in the return address, he gave the name as Carlos Allende. And we'll have to, we're, we're, I'm going to refer to him back and forth, mostly as Allende. In those days, back in the 1960s, we used to refer, we do not speak of the Philadelphia experiment, we spoke of the Allende mystery. And I'll call him, I'll keep calling him Allende. What Allende described in the letter, he said, You know, you are quite mistaken. We should not pursue unified field theory. Einstein had developed it, but was wise enough to know that humankind is not ready for it. And as an example of this, there is the case from October 1943 of a ship and all aboard it being made invisible. And he wrote this in a very strange style. And if you'll permit me, I will read, read a section from it to give your listeners some sense of the style. He says, half the officers and the crew of that ship are at present mad as hatter's. A few are even yet confined to certain areas where they may receive trained scientific aid when they either go blank or go blank and get stuck. It is when they get stuck that they call it Hell Incorporated. The man thusly stricken can not move of his own volition Unless two or more of those who were within the field go touch him quickly, else he freezes. Usually a deep freeze man goes stark, raving, gibbering, running mad if his freeze is far more than a day of our time.
1: That's very horrific. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, terrifying. <laughs>
2: There are only a very few of the experimental DE's crew left by now, sir. Most went insane. One just walked through his quarter's wall in sight of his wife and child and other crew members. Was never seen again. Two went into the flame, i.e., they froze and caught fire while carrying small boat compasses. One man carried the compass and caught fire. The other came for the laying on of hands as he was nearest, but he too took fire. They burned for 18 days. The faith in hand laying died when this happened and men's minds went by the scores. The experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failures.
1: That's very poetic. Extremely.
2: Extremely. Mm -hmm. I do not know if you've ever read the book by Joseph Mitchell, a New Yorker writer, called Joe Gould's Secret. It's a publication, actually, of a long article published in the New Yorker in 1969, in which he speaks of the style of this, this Joe Gould's Somebody we conventionally would be labeled a a a, bu- a, a a a bug infested bum, but he claimed to be working on some massive oral history of our time, and the sections of it that Mitchell saw, he used terms like incantatory, apocalyptic, of it. And all of the terms that Mitchell used of Joe Gould's book, which turned out, by the way, never to exist except for the few fragments that he was willing to show people, every single one of those terms would apply to Carlos Allende's letters. Now, Jessup, one, one of the sections in Jessup's book talked about disappearing ships and their crews. And now here was, and he had to go back to old chestnuts like Mary Celeste or something like 1880 something. I don't remember when it was. But now here was somebody describing something that had happened in the recent past that seemed to be in this category. And when Allende mentioned in the letter about the ship disappearing from Philadelphia Dockyard. And then appearing in Norfolk, Jessup may or may not have noticed that this contradicted the claim that the experiment happened in the open sea. But it really seemed to him crucial in understanding how the UFOs travel. And so the next day, after getting this letter, he sent... Allende a postcard to the New Kensington address saying this is the most remarkable letter I have ever received. Tell me more. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And in May came another letter, this time postmarked from somewhere in Pennsylvania, asking that Jessa provide him Not only with a full-time typist to record his recollections, but, but sodium pentothal, he called it, or he called it truth serum, so that I may know how many of my memories, how much of my memories are true. And we do not know if Jessup ever answered that letter. For the time being... The connection between Jessup and Carlos Allende was broken. This is the end of act one (laughs) of the real play of the, 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 the true story of the Philadelphia experiment.
1: This is a really good breaking point. So we'll uh, we'll pick up yeah, uh so if you're listening to this in weekly installments as we hope you are, then you'll be mm-hmm. able to pick up part 2 next week. So uh for now, mm-hmm. I'll just cut to the credits. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith
0: and I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: You just heard part 1 of our two-part coverage of the Philadelphia experiment with guest David Halperin. Please do check the show notes for links to David's excellent research on these kinds of topics, as well as his recent book, Intimate Alien, which we discussed back in episode 252. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Subtext, The Projection Booth, and The Daily Meditation Podcast. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys, and we hope that you'll be back next week for part two of The Philadelphia Experiment.
0: Monster House presentation.